This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. With the growing public health problem of heroin and opiate addiction in this country, attention has recently turned to the potential for other household drugs that can be abused. Here with more on all of this is William Eggleston, a doctor of pharmacy and a fellow in clinical toxicology and emergency medicine at Upstate Medical University and the Upstate New York Poison Center. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Linda. So, there are a lot of drugs, I guess, in our households that can be abused. You know, tell us about that. These are non-prescription drugs, correct? Correct. Yeah, and there certainly are. And I think the big three that, that we hear the most about and the ones that are going to affect uh, the biggest part of our population are going to be hydrocarbons, loperamide or imodium, and, and dextromethorphan, an ingredient found in a lot of cough and cold preparations. Okay, so I want to take, I want to go through each one of those and talk about exactly kind of how they're being abused, and what are the potential complications or consequences, and then what do we do about it? So let's just start with the first one you mentioned, which was the hydrocarbon abuse. Now, what does that mean? Sure. So, so hydrocarbons are just a fancy way of saying uh, a chemical that falls into a lot of the aerosolized containers we have in our homes. Um, so there's two classes. There's solvents, and solvents are things that we find in spray paints and glues and nail polish removers. Um, and those are the ones that we see the most frequent abuse with. So back up for a second. There's something about aerosolized things, and then there are solvents. And those are both within the hydrocarbon world? Is the, that what you're saying? So the solvent's in the aerosolized container, and that's the hydrocarbon that's being abused. So that dust-off spray that you use to clean off your keyboard, that has a solvent in it. You can get high off of that solvent. How about something like um, perspirant, antiperpent? Perspirants. If it's a spray-on, it can, theoretically. So some of the aerosol spray-ons, not the roll-ons or anything like that. They typically don't. Um, and then the other place you find them are fuels. So fuels is just as simple as it sounds. Butane from lighter fluid, regular gasoline. You can s inhale all of these products and get high off of them. So actually, if you were to just spray this dust off or, or take a sniff of a butane container of some kind... Well, I want you to explain more of what actually happens. I mean, sure. what, what are people actually doing so our listeners have an idea? So users do one of three things. They either what's called sniff the product. So they sniff it directly from the container itself. They'll bag it. They'll spray it. We classically see maybe in TV shows where teenagers are spraying spray paint into a bag and inhaling the contents of the bag. That's a, another common method of abuse. And then the last would be uh, what we call huffing. And that's when they put the actual solvent onto a rag or a towel and hold it up against their face and just inhale. And when the substance gets in your body, it goes to your brain and it works in a way very similar to alcohol. So is it basically you get that high, but is there any way to control the effect in terms of how much you do or how little you do, or is it just kind of random? You're kind of luck of the draw. It's, it's tough to control how much you get. And the problem with it is in addition to getting you high, it also acts on your heart. And that's where we see most of the fatalities um, from folks who are using these hydrocarbons. Well, that's exactly my point, or the question I have is, so what are the complications of doing this? Besides getting high, what else happens? Yeah, so that's the major one. It's called sudden sniffing death syndrome. Uh, it affects the way uh, electricity moves through our heart, and it can create abnormal heart rhythms. And about half of people who die from hydrocarbon use die from a sudden uh, abnormal heart rhythm. And this is irrespective of age. Correct. And, and most of the people who are using these are kids who are in our homes who are our teenagers about 75 percent of the population using hydrocarbons is under the age of 18 and about half of users say that their first use was before 13 years of age 
does it become something that they're addicted to if not actually physically addicted? Does it become kind of a psychological addiction? So it can be both physically and psychologically addicting. It works in the brain, like I said, the same way as alcohol. So there is definitely an addiction piece there. Um, most folks use it more as a gateway drug. So teens who use this are more likely to move on to alcohol, amphetamines, um, cocaine, other stimulants. But there is a subset of the population who does continue use into adulthood. And we can see a lot of issues with other medical problems as a result of that. So do you see these people coming into e uh, the ED and also basically to the poison center or you get calls to the poison center? And so we see them coming in through the emergency department and we do get calls from the poison center. So in 2015, uh, if you look at the data called into the poison center um, from January 1, 2015 till today, we had 63 calls related to abuse or misuse of hydrocarbons and an overwhelming majority of those patients were in their teens. And are there any kind of mitigating, I mean, what? how is this treated? I mean, basically, unless, if, obviously, if someone's gone into an arrhythmia and they have sudden death, there's probably not much you can do. But are there, how do they come in? What's the problem? So typically they'll come in because they've lost consciousness and they've either lost consciousness because they weren't inhaling enough oxygen because they were inhaling the solvent or because they had the arrhythmia and they lost consciousness. If we get them early enough, we can treat it. There are things that we can do. And then long-term treatment becomes very tricky because most substance abuse programs aren't familiar with working with hydrocarbon patients. And when surveyed, a majority of, of programs say they wouldn't know what to do if someone walked in the door and said, I have a problem with hydrocarbon abuse. That's very interesting. So let's get to the second one because then I want to kind of talk generally about this whole issue. But you, you mentioned loperamide, and that's also known on the on the market. It, it's it's formal name is Imodium, right? Correct. I mean, it's it's brand name. Yeah. So tell us about that. How is that abused? What what in that is a problem? So most of us think about this as an innocuous, over-the-counter drug that we took last time we had diarrhea. And in over-the-counter doses, it's completely safe. But the unique thing about loperamide is it's an opioid. It's no different than heroin. It's no different than morphine or oxycodone. It works exactly the same way in our body. It's just that when you take it in doses recommended over the counter, your body doesn't absorb enough of it to get high off of it. Um, but as users have found out in the last five to six years, if you take enough of it, you can certainly overcome that and you can get high in the same way you would get off of any other opiate medication. When you say the last five years or so, so has this been an outgrowth or the interest in this drug or in loperamide, an outgrowth of the idea that there are more people addicted to opiates? I think that probably has something to do with it. So likely there's there's probably always been a subset of users who were using this under the radar. We weren't aware of it. But there was a big boom in 2009 um, progressing to present day. And a large piece of that probably has to do with folks looking for another outlet. There's new regulations in place. They can't get their prescription opioids. A lot of folks turn to heroin, and those not turning to heroin are, are turning to Imodium. So what are the consequences of using this in, in, in large measure? So I guess the theme of the day is, is heart toxicity. So, so loperamide, in addition to being an opioid, acts on the heart as well, and it can change the way we conduct electricity uh, in a manner very similar to hydrocarbons. And so folks who are taking their dose uh, that normally gets them high uh, end up with an abnormal heart rhythm. And this one, unlike hydrocarbons, can last for many days. Uh, so we've had patients that we've taken care of who've had multiple abnormal heart rhythms over the course of two to three days that have required uh, critical medical attention. So basically, if they come into an ED or you hear about them through the poison center, 
you basically have to treat them in and maybe even hospitalize them for some time. A majority of the ones that we treat uh, end up in the hospital, usually in the ICU setting for many days. How much Imodium do you have to take for that to happen? So users report anywhere between 50 to 300 tablets a day. Um, so a normal dose, an over-the-counter dose, would be four tablets total in a day. So they are taking large doses, um, but it's it's still cost-effective. As of, as of today, you can still get a 400-count bottle uh, for $7.59. So if you're taking 100, you're getting high for less than $2 a day. So what is, is there any kind of government attention to this or need for further regulation? Because obviously this was an over-the-counter drug that now has very, very serious potential side effects. Correct. And, and the reason it went over the counter was because folks didn't think there was a lot of abuse potential. But in recent weeks, our group actually at the Upstate New York Poison Center um, published two deaths in the Annals of Emergency Medicine about two weeks ago now. Uh, and it's received a lot of media attention. Um, and there is some comment now from the FDA that they're considering they'll review the information and, and take whatever steps they deem necessary. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with toxicologist Dr. William Eggleston, and we're talking about household drugs that can be abused, and we were talking about Imodium. So there may be some um, consequence to all of this in terms of renewed government regulation. But um, let's get on to the third one, and then I want to talk generally about this sure. whole issue. So the third one that you mentioned is cough and cold uh, products. Yeah. So you might have in your medicine cabinet Dimetap or something of that nature. Correct, yeah. And some of these cough and cold products contain an active ingredient called dextromethorphan. So this is an over-the-counter drug. It's sold as a cough suppressant. Uh, but the thing about dextromethorphan is, is, is kind of the theme with all these, if you take enough of it, it gets you high. And dextromethorphan acts in the body uh, at high doses the same way as PCP does. Wow. Uh, so you can take enough of it and you can become altered, you can hallucinate, uh, but more, you know, wow. more concerning, your heart rate can bump, you can become very combative, um, and you can have things like potentially seizures um, or other complications of just stimulant overdrive. In those same circumstances, do you end up basically in an ED and need treatment? And is it treatable? I mean, can you bring people back? Yeah, so generally these patients end up in the ED um, completely out of their mind, right? So they're, they don't know where they are. They don't know who they are. They don't know who the people are around them. Um, and they're, they're generally very combative. And so we can, if they're in the appropriate setting, take care of them. It's, it's mostly supportive. So we give them medicines to calm them uh, so that they are able to get through that piece and let their body break down the, the dextromethorphan. Uh, but you can see why if someone had taken that at home or, or with friends, how them becoming altered, agitated, angry could be a, a real danger to themselves and the people around them. So it strikes me that all of these things are at, at right readily available, basically, you're talking about. For the I mean, most part, yeah. For anyone to do anything with. And I guess the question I would have is, and, and then also has the potential for addiction on top Correct. of it, I guess the question is what can or should people be doing? I mean, what should the government be doing now? What should parents or concerned you know, family members be doing? Yeah, so at least the unique part with dextromethorphan, uh, New York State in 2013 did place legislation uh, that requires folks to be 18 to purchase it. So we have taken some steps here in, here in our state to curb abuse. But that's to purchase. Correct. But if you're living in a home where someone has cough yes. medicine 
in you know innocently purchased you can very easily get it i think the big message the big take-home message to to parents especially is that um, there are drugs in your home that you think are safe that in the right doses can be very dangerous and i think that we need to continue to treat all medicines as equals uh, so recognizing that just because it's over the counter doesn't mean we can take more of it or or it's it's any safer than something that's prescription it still needs to be taken as recommended in order to get the medicine the benefits of that medicine uh, but also to prevent any bad effects um, and just recognizing that anything that's cheap legal and easy to get to um, if there's abuse potential there uh, our, our teens are going to find a way to use it. Yeah, that's really true and frightening in the fact that also that they're mixing drugs. So l let me make a little segue here in the little bit of time we have left to talk about the fact that they are also grabbing prescription drugs that are not meant for them and using those. And besides the classic opioids that we know about, what other drugs have come up in terms of your experience in the home that parents should be or a family members should be aware of in terms of what kids are using or sure. others are abusing? So I think one of the biggest uh, groups that we're seeing abuse now of is benzodiazepines. So these are sedative drugs. Uh, the classic ones that people think about are Ativan and Xanax. And these are drugs that work in the brain in a similar way to ethanol. And they're drugs that are in a lot of our homes. Um, and so I think as parents, uh, we need to recognize that uh, kids are getting their source of prescription drugs from mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. And it's important that we keep these meds in a place that's safe. We keep good counts on them. We're aware of how many we have. And if we have old medications, we have to get them out of the house. It's not good to... to... And how do we do that, just quickly? Sure. So, so there are a couple of ways. There are pharmacies that will take those drugs back. They're national drug take-back days, so in uh, October and April every year. And then most sheriff's departments will take controlled substances back. Mm -hmm. And what there's an, an there's another class of drugs also that's being abused. Yeah, so uh, stimulant drugs, ADHD medications like methylphenidate, uh, amphetamines, so Concerta, Ritalin. Uh, these are drugs that a lot of teens and younger younger kids are on, and they are abusable. Kids in high school, kids in college that are, are not prescribed these medicines, they want them too. Uh, and there's many instances of kids getting bullied or, or having their medicines stolen from them by f folks that they thought were friends. So parents recognizing those meds are abusable and, and should probably be kept in the home and, and away from places where the, the temptation to sell them or distribute them uh, is less. So just bottom line summary of all of this, I mean, we need some government help here or some way of regulating some of these household drugs that you're talking about. But what's the overall arching statement? I think, I think the overall arching statement is the classic toxicology statement. So the dose makes the poison. Uh, Anything in, in large amounts is probably not good, and we need to recognize that just because something has the label of over-the-counter or paint or nail polish remover doesn't mean that it's necessarily safe, and we need to always take caution when we use these products and, and use them as we're instructed to. Wonderful. Very, very important message. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been William Eggleston. He's a doctor of pharmacy and fellow in clinical toxicology and emergency medicine at Upstate Medical University and the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.